Today on Blue 58, the early part of the Packers' 2020 schedule is highlighted by some high-level quarterbacks. How scared should you be as a Packers fan? Probably not scared at all because they're not going to hurt you. They're just going to be on your TV. But how scared should the Packers be? Again, probably not all that scared, but maybe a little bit concerned. Let's discuss. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here on another episode, one on which we have a lot to discuss. We're going to talk about Lane Taylor reworking his contract, some elite quarterbacks the the Packers will be facing early in the 2020 season, whenever that might be. And then we'll talk about Chapter 8 of Take Your Eye Off the Ball as we continue our march through Pat Kerwin's book. We're really going to take his topic and run with it on this episode. But first, a couple of housekeeping sorts of things. First, if you are one of our Patreon supporters, we are very grateful to have you. But you may have gotten an email from me whenever it was. Late last week, I think. Since the last time we talked, I sent out an email regarding Patreon's decision to start charging sales tax. I believe this is a decision that is entirely out of their hands. But if you are indeed a Patreon supporter, I'm sorry about that. You may see a change in your donations depending on where you live. You may also not see a change in your donations uh, depending on how Patreon decides to enforce the various rules affecting this decision that they've made. Is that complicated enough? I'm sorry, that's that's just the, the way it is. This is a, a thing that they are inflicting on us, people who use Patreon. Um, and there's really nothing we can do about it. So if, if that changes what you want to do Patreon-wise, I'm sorry. Um, I understand. And uh, I want this entire thing to be as simple as possible. The good news is, if you are a Patreon supporter and uh, you are looking forward to some exclusive content that goes out only on Patreon, you are in luck. There should be at least, I think, two pieces coming out there this month, uh, provided I can get them published. But they are already mostly outlined and and written out. So uh, you will have some stuff coming your way. If you're not a Patreon supporter and you'd like to do that, uh, there is a link in your show notes where you can get signed up and uh, do that to support the work that we're doing, help us continue to, to bring you some great stuff. And uh, there should be some good stuff on the way there if that's something you're interested in doing. So uh, consider that if you're already a supporter and you're seeing some changes in your donations, that is why. Secondly, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are some things going on in the world right now. Some very important things, some very different sort of things. The world looks a little bit strange right now, and I understand that. And I understand that if it, it's frustrating and uh, all sorts of different adjectives. Um, Life is not continuing at its normal rate and in its normal shape lately. I think that is the most diplomatic possible way we can say that. And I just to briefly address it, I've made the conscious decision to not really say anything about it online. Not because I don't think it's important, but because I don't think people come to me seeking those kinds of takes. That's not because I don't have them or because they're not important. But I just don't think that I'm serving you in these, to use a very advertising-speak terminology, in these in these trying times. I don't think I'm serving you well if I'm using the platform that I have to give, at best, incomplete takes about what's going on out there in the world. This is not so much a stick-to-sports stick things as much as what I think of as a restaurant analogy. So this platform 
and, and I'm saying that all the writing that I do, all the, the podcasting stuff that I do, the social media stuff too, to me, it, it comes down to being kind of like a restaurant. You know what you're going to get if you go there. Like if you go to McDonald's, you, you, pretty, you, have, you have a pretty good idea what's going to be there when you get there. But to make another Mitch Hedberg quote for the second time in about a month, if you show up and they say, nope, we're not participating in anything, we got spaghetti, you'd be a little bit put off probably, and justifiably so. You didn't go to McDonald's to get spaghetti. You went to McDonald's to get, I don't know, whatever you like at McDonald's and expect to be there. It's June, so you can't get a shamrock shake, but I like to get those the few times a year I go to McDonald's. Point is, you are not here to hear me talk about current events. If you would like to talk about them in a forum other than this, I'd be happy to do so. But that's not what I think of um, when I think of, of this show. And uh, I don't want to come across as insensitive or pandering by, by going out of my way to post stuff. But I also want to be clear that we're not just ignoring things because we, uh, we don't think they're important either. So that's my, my two-minute overview of where we stand in relation to what's going on in the world. And there sure is a lot of it. And uh, I hope wherever you are, you are safe, you are well, and uh, that you feel um, like you can participate in, in what's going on to whatever extent that you think is, is a good idea. And again, if you want to talk about that, I am all ears, but we're probably not going to do a lot about it publicly, and I think that's okay. Let's talk a little bit of Packers, because we got some actual Packers news for the first time in what feels like a long time, and just news that it was re- Lane Taylor reworking his contract while relatively insignificant, seems like a really big, fun deal to talk about. So Lane Taylor shaves about $3 million off his 2020 cap number, but can make back about $1.5 million of what he lost via incentives. In hindsight, this probably should have been a little bit more obvious of a solution than it, than it probably seems like. And if you were screaming this from the rooftops this entire last three or four months, or five months, six months since the season ended, good, good for you. Probably should have seen that coming. Um, I think a lot of us treated it, though, as more of a foregone conclusion that Lane Taylor lost his starting job. Packers could clean up a fair amount of cap space, clear up a fair amount of cap space by moving on from his deal. And they've, they've got a couple guards they like. They've got Elton Jenkins. They've got uh, Lucas Patrick. They've got Billy Turner, but I, I don't know how they really feel about him because he was not probably the guard they thought they were getting when they gave him the contract they did last year. But now you got two really good things. You've got competition and you've got depth. Competition raises everybody's game, especially in a competitive situation like a football team, a competitive team sport. There's competition within and without your team. So that's always good. And depth is always good as well. And it's, if you're getting competition and depth at a crucial position, that's probably something you should do. And the Packers have figured out a way to keep their offensive line group relatively intact. And uh, and now you're, you're basically good to go. Furthermore, you've probably got at least six, probably seven offensive line spots all but locked up now. You've got your starting five, let's say four for sure. So Bakhtiari, Elton Jenkins, uh, Corey Lindsley, and Rick Wagner at right tackle, since they really don't have another solid established tackle option there. Billy Turner, at least like three-quarters of a starter, but then you've also got Lucas Patrick, and now Lane Taylor. Let's just round up and say we've got seven spots accounted for. That's a pretty good place to be in June. Now injuries are going to happen. 
some training camp competition is going to happen, and probably two of those three draft picks are, are going to make serious runs at roster spots, but that's a pretty good place to be heading into the season. Having seven linemen you feel pretty good about, even if your feelings are a little bit mixed on Billy Turner, that there's worse situations to be in. So I think good move by the Packers overall, and a good move for Lane Taylor, because sentimentally, I love Lane Taylor too. I've liked his story. Uh, it was cool to see him blossom from undrafted uh, free agent out of Oklahoma State to kind of fringe roster guy to starter to starter the Packers felt comfortable enough with to move him to left tackle in a pinch remember that early in the 2016 season a guy who got a good contract extension and now uh, lives to see another day with the Packers uh, by reworking his extension and I hope he gets a chance to earn as much of that one and a half million dollars back as he possibly can because uh, he's putting in a lot of work, and he's really become a solid player for the Packers, and, and his success story is a good one. So good move for the Packers, good move for Lane Taylor, and I hope it works out for, for both sides. Let's continue our preview of um, the Packers' 2020 opponents. And as we said up top, the early portion of the Packers' schedule includes some premier quarterbacks, or at the very least, some very, very famous quarterbacks. The Packers, or the next three opponents, rather, we're going to be looking at Uh, for the Packers are the Saints, the Falcons, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We've looked at the NFC North, so now we're just going to move through the rest of the schedule, of the schedule, three at a time until we get to the very last group, then we'll do four, um, until we filled out the entire 2020 schedule. So let's start with the New Orleans Saints. Last year, the Saints finished 13-3. and They were first in the NFC South, and the Packers will play them week three of the 2020 season on the road, on Sunday night football. Saints returning a very solid team, one that was very good last year. On offense, they ended up fourth overall in the league by DVOA, that metric from football outsiders we return to again and again. Number three in the past, number 10 in the run, pretty solid team overall on offense. They'll attack you a bunch of different ways, including with Taysom Hill. I bet we hear a little bit about the fact that he used to be on the Packers at some point this fall. I just have a feeling that it's going to come up. On defense, the Saints were no slouch either. They were 11th overall in DVOA there, 13th against the pass, and 5th against the run. Now, that's that's a reason that the number may not be quite as impressive um, as it looks at first blush, because bolstering your overall standing in the defense by being good at run defense is not super ideal. You'd rather just be an elite pass defense and and fill in the run where you can. The Packers got half of that equation more or less right last year. They just didn't stop the run basically at all. Hopefully they can step that up a little bit this year. But the the Saints seem to have things working and they parlayed that into a 13 and 3 record. Good re, uh, good season in New Orleans. Their most notable offensive addition this past offseason has to be tight end Adam Troutman, not so much because of who he is, but because of what the Saints did to acquire him. They traded four draft picks to move up into the third round to get him the big tight end out of Dayton, considered by some to be the finest tight end in this class. He was taken with the 105th overall pick. The Saints traded pick 130, 169, 203, and 244. That's pretty wild. That's that's quite an exchange just for one one player. And technically, by trade value, by most measures, the Saints still won that trade. They come out, came out in overall pick value ahead of the Vikings there. But I think by common sense, the Vikings win this trade. If you have the chance to select four players in the draft instead of one, 
you should always pick the four players because chances are you're going to have a higher rate of success with four players instead of one. Their most notable defensive addition was Wisconsin linebacker Zach Bond. He was a third-round pick, 74th overall. I liked a lot about what he could do. Sometimes you wonder how he'll fit in at the NFL level. You know, is he an off-the-ball linebacker? Is he an edge rusher? But sometimes that's not really the point either. Just take a good player and figure out the rest later. Figure out a use for him once you got him on the roster. That seems to be what the Saints are thinking here. So as Packers fans, how how concerned should we be with the Saints? Now, playing the Saints on the road on Sunday night football makes me very nervous. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if the Packers got blasted in two of these three games here. Uh, It just seems to, to be the way the Packers have played the past few years when they go on the road and play a marquee opponent in prime time. Maybe it's just me remembering the, the two 49ers games from last season, but it just seems like the Packers have a pretend, propensity to lay an egg on national TV. And doing it in week three uh, on the road seems like there's a fairly high degree of probability. That's a little bit doom and gloom to start this podcast, but you know this would be right at the top of my concern list for the Packers 2020 schedule. The Saints scare me a little bit. Let's move on then to the Falcons. When do the Packers play them? Well, the Packers play the Saints in Sunday night football, primetime game. They are back on primetime just one week later, playing the Falcons on Monday night football uh, to round out week four. In 2019, the Falcons struggled a little bit. Seven and nine, second in the NFC South. They don't really stand out anywhere. On offense, they were 15th overall by DVOA, middling against the, the pass and the run, 12th against the pass, 22nd against the run, not really outstanding in either area. By defense, kind of same story, 20th overall, 25th against the pass, 14th against the run. The most notable and most offensive addition uh, the Falcons made this offseason was their uniforms. Just gross. I do not like them at all. And if you'll pardon the pun, yes, that makes them their most offensive addition. Their most notable addition on offense, though, has to be Todd Gurley. And I think this is interesting from a philosophical perspective. You're basically betting that you can get enough out of a guy whose knees have been so bad that he's basically been on a pitch count since college to justify a one-year $6 million deal. On the flip side, your bet is also pretty small here, just one year for $6 million. It's pretty painless to get out of that even if you got to wait a year, and just move on. I think it's interesting that this move also comes from the same general manager who rolled the dice on late career Steven Jackson, Thomas Dimitrov. Um, I don't know if you, you can find any similarities between the two beyond that, other than that they're both running backs. But uh, if you're going to buy low on a player, he seems like a fairly good player to buy low on. You can debate whether or not $6 million is low for a running back, but that's a discussion for a different day. The Falcons' most notable defensive addition has to be Dante Fowler. Now, if Todd Gurley was buying low, getting in on Fowler now is buying about as high as he possibly can because he had a career-high 11.5 sacks last year, and he parlayed that into a three-year, $45 million deal with the Falcons. That's not like bank-breaking money necessarily, but it still strikes me as a lot for a pass rusher on his third team in basically three years. Got traded from the the Jaguars to the Rams two years ago, and now he ends up on the Falcons. For his career, uh, Fowler's production ratio is good but not great. It's .976 for his entire career. Ideally, you'd want to be at or above one, but he's right there. 
Pre-Rams, his production ratio was .718, kind of stuck in a bad system there in Jacksonville. He did have that big year in uh, in Los Angeles that really bumped up his numbers. So overall for the Falcons, how concerned should we be? It's really tough to pin down the Falcons, especially now in June, and that's the caveat that I always say when we do these things. Uh, these teams change a lot. It'll change a lot for the Packers between now and whenever they end up playing the Falcons. So I'd say fair to middling as far as how we how concerned should we be about the Falcons. Probably slightly more concerned than not concerned right now, uh, but that's just because the Falcons seem to always play the Packers pretty tough. And again, that there could be some some recency bias there. The Packers having a couple high-profile notable losses against the Falcons. Finally, the Buccaneers. The Packers will play them in week, uh, week six. They get a bye in week five, early bye this year. But then in week six, they travel to Tampa to take on the Buccaneers uh, for a 425 kick, 325 p.m. kickoff if you are in the central time zone. And if you are, I envy you. That is my favorite time zone. Uh, the Buccaneers had an unusual 2019, kind of a lame duck quarterback uh, in Jameis Winston, just trying to make the best out of the last year of that experience, unable to really move on from him. And uh, they rode him to like 65 interceptions, I think, ballpark. If not, it felt like that. I know it wasn't 65, uh, but it was sure a heck of a lot. Um, still, not overall a terrible offensive output considering that. Now, you're not going to get super excited about ranking 22nd overall by DVOA, but still, given that they turned it over as consistently as Jameis Winston did, that is still kind of impressive. They were 18th in the past, 26th in the run overall. Not exciting, but Again, not as bad as they probably could have been. By defense, though, they were very solid. Fifth overall by DVOA, 12th against the pass, first against the run. Again, you get the caveat of boosting your overall ranking by being good against the run, but still uh, not a lot to sneeze at there. Their most notable offensive addition this offseason, just some guy, you may have heard of him, quarterback, big, strong arm, you know, well-regarded wherever he's been, really elevates his teammates. I'm talking, of course, about Blaine Gabbert, the guy who's really going to stabilize things as the backup for Tom Brady, the guy who's really the biggest addition uh, for the Buccaneers on offense this offseason. Looking at the situation for Brady, it's easy to see why he'd be interested in Tampa Bay. Bruce Arians runs a system that is known to be very quarterback-friendly, He's got Mike Evans. He's got Chris Godwin. He's got his personal friend, Rob Gronkowski. He's got O.J. Howard if he's not traded. It's it's a pretty good situation. The Buccaneers also have that very good defense. So if things can get clicking for the Buccaneers on offense, you never know what can happen. It, it could be a team that really comes together really quickly. A little bit of a, of a caveat, though. The Buccaneers were one of the healthiest teams in the NFL last year. They were second only to the Minnesota Vikings in adjusted games lost. Uh, That number we talked about, or we talk about every year about this time, football outsiders tracking uh, who loses the most games um, on their roster as a whole. The Buccaneers were really healthy. They really had the best, like almost the best possible situation on defense and on offense. And they, they put together a really good defense as a result. Can they put together that same sort of effort if they're not quite so healthy in 2020? I think that's a fair question. The Buccaneers also made a couple other noteworthy additions. Rob Gronkowski, duh. Uh, but also Minnesota 
Golden Gophers wide receiver Tyler Johnson was their fifth-round pick. He was one of the wide receivers we previewed uh, earlier this spring. He didn't test at the combine, but he was among the most productive wide receivers in the class, so a good addition to an already wide receiver-rich offense there. On defense, their their most notable additions really came in the form of not losing any guys. They didn't lose Shaq Barrett because they were able to franchise him. They brought back Jason Pierre-Paul. They brought back Indomitian Sue. So some good additions or additions by non-subtraction up front. They also drafted Antoine Winfield Jr. in the second round. Some people thought he would be a Packers target there too. 45th overall pick. Heads to the Buccaneers, though, instead. So how concerned should you be about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers? Well, it depends on two things. Do you believe in Tom Brady still being good and his mild to moderate statistical decline just being a result of a lack of talent around him in New England? Or do you think that he is just uh, held together with, you know, bailing wire and good intentions? Is is the end just, just around the corner and you're just waiting to find it? Do you also believe that Tampa Bay's defense will be the same or will they regress? Because that is also going to have a big effect on on how good this Tampa Bay Buccaneers team will be, how high their ceiling could be. I don't have an answer to either of those things, but I think those are the two big questions that will affect how this team plays in 2020. So there's your next three opponents. Which one are you most worried about? Let us know. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I would also love to hear your thoughts on uh, the next chapter of Take Your Eye Off the Ball as we transition seamlessly into the next topic here. We are talking about Chapter 8 here, one in which uh, Mr. Kerwin talks about the construction of 4-3 and 3-4 defenses. We're going to kind of stray away from the direction he went with the topic and go in a direction uh, that I think is is a little bit more germane to the, the way that we have talked about football. In this chapter, we see the genesis of the production ratio number that we talk about, and Kerwin also introduces us to the explosion number, two figures that he uses to judge who may be a good defensive line prospect. So I thought it'd be interesting to take a look at a few defensive line and edge rusher prospects that the Packers have drafted and uh, see if they were good prospects based on what Kerwin said. So explosion number, measures a few different athletic attributes, puts them into a a formula, and if you rate a 70 or better or so, you will uh, be considered an explosive prospect, and Kerwin would be interested in you as a result. He also talks about production ratio, which is a, a measure of tackles for loss and sacks per game. You want to be at or above one, the higher, the better. So how have the Packers done identifying and drafting prospects that rate highly in both of those numbers? I listed, or I've put together a sample of 16 players that the Packers have drafted, either on the defensive line or as edge rushers, or guys the Packers have signed, just to include Preston and Zadarius Smith there as well. And I got to tell you, it's a pretty mixed bag. So this list includes, here's a list of 16 names, so brace yourself. Nick Perry, Carl Bradford, B.J. Raji, Dean Lowry, Dayton Jones, Rashawn Gary, Clay Matthews, Ricky Elmore, Vince Beagle, Kyler Fackrell, Kenny Clark, Montrevious Adams, Preston, and Zedarius Smith, Jonathan Garvin, James Looney, and Brad Jones. Got all that? Good. That is not the complete list of defensive line and outside linebacker prospects the Packers have drafted. Those are the ones with the most easily acceptable testing numbers and guys who had 
stats that were worth taking a look at. So we've we've dropped a few of those guys. Mike Neal was one we dropped. Brady Papinga, another one. Uh, this is just a sample that we're looking at. So of that list, how many hit the thresholds for, for Kerwin in both numbers? Actually, just four of them. Nick Perry, Carl Bradford, BJ Raji, and Dean Lowry. So just from that list, is this a good prediction for prospects that turned out to be good? I would say no. Um, Nick Perry had all the athleticism in the world, but did not turn that into regular production. So much so that the Packers were happy to eat an $11.5 million cap hit to get him off their books. Same sort of goes with Carl Bradford, who, although he was productive in college, was a little bit undersized for the, the pro game and never really found a home. Dean Lowry is a bit of a mixed bag. I am probably a bigger Lowry fan than most. I think it's also fair to say the Packers seem to have misjudged the market on defensive linemen a little bit, although I think he, he still brings a lot of value with, with just his, his reliability and the things that they ask him to do up front. Raji, too, is a bit of a mixed bag. At his best, he definitely is a good example of uh, what can occur when you have a guy who meets these thresholds because he could play a true nose sort of position. He could play a three technique. He could play a little defensive end. And he was productive when they turned him loose as a pass rusher. They probably didn't do that as often as they should early on. And then when he was transitioning more into the true nose role late, they were counting on him to do a little bit too much of that. So bit of a mixed bag, just scouting by these numbers. Let's look at a couple more prospects. How about Dayton Jones and Rashawn Gary? These are two that are mixed bag prospects. Gary meets the the threshold for explosion and is just borderline for production ratio. So he has a 74 number for explosion and a production ratio of 0.956. So a little bit under one, but still not too bad. And I think we're seeing a little bit of why. I guess he's he's playing basically to type. We're not seeing a little bit. We're seeing exactly uh, the sort of player that, that... He is, based on these numbers, an athletic guy who is not super productive. And that's been the knock on Gary as far back as high school. He's got all the physical tools in the world, but he doesn't necessarily dominate the way that that he should. Dayton Jones did not meet the athletic threshold by just a fuzz. 69.83. He was also borderline for uh, production ratio. And Dayton Jones was a guy, for me at least, where you could always see what the Packers were thinking. It just didn't quite work out. And I would have to go back and look at the 2013 draft again uh, to see what other options the Packers may have had. But you can see it. You can see what the Packers were thinking when they drafted Dayton Jones. A couple other prospects here we take a look at. Who are some that would the Packers would have missed on had they gone away from the or gone with these thresholds? Clay Matthews is one notable example. He did not have a good explosion number despite having great testing numbers at the Combine. Uh, And his production ratio was not good either because he was a special teamer for a lot of his career at USC. His production ratio just 0.40. Not great. Kenny Clark, too. Also not super explosive. His explosion number just 66. His production ratio not super great either. 0.716. Not super productive there. But then you get to guys like Zadarius Smith and Preston Smith. They were both very productive in college. Preston Smith's PR for his last two seasons was 1.32, so very good there. Uh, Zadarius Smith's a little bit lower, 1.04, but still still solid. However, neither of them meet the explosion threshold. So the point is, these numbers are only going to get you pointed in the right direction. 
you got to look at a lot more to figure out whether prospects are worthwhile or not. And that's something that I try to make a point of whenever we look at numbers like this. We did a lot of scouting that way leading up to the draft. I called it spreadsheet scouting. It's good shorthand if you um, don't have time to burn through a lot of film. But don't let, don't let that be the be-all, end-all. Take these numbers, use them as a guide, and build on top of it. And Kerwin's chapter here, chapter 8, does a good job of explaining what else you should be looking for, what roles guys are being asked to play in 3-4 and 4-3 fronts. And I think there's a lot of good stuff in there. The Packers, had they just relied on these numbers, would have been up a creek. And I think that's something we intuitively understand. But there are a lot of guys that you can see what the Packers were thinking just by looking at these numbers too. Dayton Jones, an example. BJ Raji, another example. And even Rashawn Gary. Will it ultimately translate into success on the field? I think we're still waiting to see for some of these guys. Some of these guys have turned out to be really great prospects though. And I think that is uh, a point in the favor of some of these numbers. That's all I've got for you on this episode. I do appreciate you listening in. Let us know if there is anything you would like us to touch on or address in these uh, in these upcoming podcasts because I want this show to be your show as much as anything else. Let me know if you've got any questions, if you've got any thoughts, if you've got any topics you want us to touch on. Because as I always say, continuing that conversation around the Packers is what's going to help us all become smarter Packers fans. And smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58. Stay safe out there, everybody.